This is a Federal News Network podcast. The following program is produced and furnished in conjunction with Mark Amtower of Amtower and Company, which is entirely responsible for its content. This is Amtower Off Center on Federal News Network. Every week, author, speaker, consultant Mark Amtower gives you his take on what's going on in the world of federal marketing. Now, your host, Mark Amtower. Welcome to Amtower Off Center on the Federal News Network. I'm Mark Amtower. I'm here today with a return guest. Hadn't been here in a little while, though. Larry Allen of Allen Federal. Larry, welcome back to the show. Mark, thanks. It's a pleasure being back. For the few people out there who may not know who Larry Allen is, uh, go ahead and fill in the blanks, please. Mark, we provide professional problem solving for our clients in government, whether it's contract compliance, where my motto is, it's not about how much money you make, it's about how much money you keep. My job is to make sure my clients both make money and comply so they keep the money they make. Uh, whether it is getting questions answered that you don't want to ask uh, directly, Allen Federal is very good at gathering information and helping your company get on the right track to do sustainable government business. Yeah, and for those who don't know, Larry started off in an advisory capacity on Capitol Hill, uh, was president of the Coalition for Government Procurement, the top GSA organization for government contractors, GSA schedule organization. You were president there for, what, almost 20 years? That's right. And then has been out primarily on his own now for the last uh, 10, 12 years now? It's been a while. It's been a little over 10 years. Yeah. Cool. Well, well welcome to the frontline wars here, but <laughs> <laughs> So let's talk about how you and your clients are dealing with this new normal. You know, mine are going eek, eek. We can't meet with our clients. And I'm going, eh, not necessarily true. So what's going on with you and your clients? Well, Mark, I've certainly seen that with some of my clients. They're the ones that uh, are used to not being in one place for very long, going from door to door. Uh, but you can't do that right now. It's going to be quite a while before you can do that anywhere uh, in the federal space for a government contractor, regardless whether or not they let their own people back. So ones that I have seen adapt well are the ones who have developed a specific focus. All right, we understand that the government is going to, it's reacting to COVID right now. It's not as true as it was a month or two ago, but it's still pretty much a focus of a lot of government agencies. What's in our solution set that we can help our clients respond to their COVID challenges? So is it providing secure telecommunications? Is it uh, providing uh, an easy and effective way to get supplies? Is it making sure that they have uh, the type of connected laptop and desktop solutions they need. So the successful companies are the ones who are focusing on what their customers' needs are now, and they're trying to meet those needs. Very quickly, I think it became evident that if you're trying to sell your customer something that they don't think they need right now, you're not going to be successful. From those comments alone, are are you dealing primarily with product firms? 
Uh, dealing with both product and uh, professional service companies. Okay. Uh, for the professional service companies, Mark, one of the challenges has been what, uh, how to make sure their employees continue to be able to work and support clients when they would ordinarily be in a government agency, but of course now they're not. This has been a whole huge industry-wide issue, and it was one of the reasons why Congress uh, several months ago passed the CARES Act to make sure that companies that provided professional services on that type of basis uh, were able to offset some of the expenses with employees who had to transition over to working remotely. Uh, and then when it became apparent that this was going to be more than a two-week thing, how those assets were going to be able to support the agency mission they were assigned to over the long term. So this has been a, a different issue for service companies, but the service companies I've worked with generally have the relationships and had the relationships before COVID hit so that it's not that much of a difference for them to talk on the computer or on the phone with those people rather than meet them in person. They're still getting it done. Okay. Now for your clients, do you, have you talked to them about leveraging social platforms like LinkedIn more during this? I absolutely have been doing that, Mark. You've got to go where your federal customers are. as That's particularly true if you can't go where they are physically. So the, one of the places that they absolutely do go to is LinkedIn, and they're looking for thought leadership, whether it's this year or last year, and I think we can confidently say next year will be the same. Federal buyers are looking for thought leadership. They're looking for people they can trust uh, to do business with, uh, and LinkedIn is a tremendous platform where you will certainly find lots of current and potential federal customers. Yeah, my last tally was 2.1 million uh, identifiable by agency, operating division, uh, et cetera. So, um, so they are definitely findable. One of the questions that I've had recently is how are the bid teams and proposal teams collaborating uh, without, you know, the war room setting? I, there are an awful lot of companies that have gone to virtual platforms and I, the, the thing that I find, Mark, is that that gives them basic functionality and that's fine within the companies. The biggest thing that I've seen, though, that I think still has to change is that there are companies, as there are federal employees, who believe that they can outlast the pandemic and that temporary approaches are, are just that. There are things that will bridge them between two nor areas of normal. And I'd, I'd like to disabuse people who hold that view of that notion. <laughs> Uh, we're not going to be in a place where this is a bridge or a temporary solution. So whether it is making use of social media, which is very important, whether it's finding ways to collaborate uh, and really collaborate, not just in a 29-minute, 15-second Zoom call, you have to have the types of 
human interactions that you had before, the so-called water cooler discussions that uh, are good for connections, but they're also good for occasionally coming up with an idea that you don't think of in a formal setting, whether it's sitting around an actual or virtual conference room table. Okay. I've been obviously like everybody else been on a couple of hundred zoom meetings over the last 180 days, I guess it is now longer. So maybe more than, than that (laughs) 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 number, number of meetings wise, I find zoom to be relatively okay for face to face for one-on-ones and very small groups, larger groups. It tends to be, you know, at least for discussion purposes, unwieldy. Well, I think you're right. I think, and not just to pick on that platform, I've used, as I'm sure you have, any one of the number of similar platforms. And it's difficult to uh, feel like you can be an active part of a conversation if you have more than a certain number of people. It's also a little difficult to track the conversation if you're part of a large group. You begin to lose what the efficacy was you were hoping to achieve by bringing all the people together in the first place. And I think that's something interesting that we're going to have to figure out as a workforce. If you're a government contractor, maybe you don't want to have that all hands meeting because having an all hands meeting uh, is not as productive as it would be in person. So maybe it's a unit by unit meeting and you do it differently with different people. The same approach to uh, working with government customers. Government likes to have, they like to outnumber you (laughs) in a meeting. Yeah. Uh, So if you're going to bring three of your people to a discussion, you can guess the government's going to want to have five or six on their end. That starts to make it difficult to keep track of who's in your meeting, what the roles are of people, and it's difficult for everyone to engage. So Maybe if you're a contractor, you resist the urge to bring three people to a Zoom meeting. Maybe you do yourself and one other person, because that will drive the government's behavior to where they'll have two or three people on their end. And while it's a smaller discussion, it's more productive for those that participate. Yeah. One quick question there. Most of these platforms, including the one that we're using uh, to record this, Ring Central is what we use at at Federal News Network, but it's a Zoom-based platform. You have the capability of recording. So when you're doing a meeting with feds like that, do you have to tell them that you're recording? Oh, I think you definitely tell feds that if you're recording the meeting. Uh, It's different to record a meeting than it is to sit physically in front of someone and and they can see you taking notes. Yeah. Uh, Remember, these are federal employees, Um, with their own jobs and missions, and you should never assume that it's okay to record them without their advanced permission. This is something that uh, people are going to have to work through. It's better for you to have your keyboard open so you can type in notes or to have a pad and pen next to you uh, to write down the comments just as you otherwise might, but recording is a little different. Yeah, uh, we're going to take a break. You're listening to Amtower Off Center on the Federal News Network. I'm here with Larry Allen of Allen Federal, A-L-L-E-N, federal.com, back right after this. 
Welcome back to Amtower Off Center on the Federal News Network. I'm here today with Larry Allen of Allen Federal, and we're discussing, you know, various topics around the uh, the new normal, whatever it shapes out to be. So, you and I have been in the market long enough to remember the Cooperative Administrative Support Program uh, from GSA back in the early '90s, which basically introduced, among other things, telework to the government market. And in D.C., we had four telework centers, I believe two in Virginia and two in Maryland, where where uh, the normal commuters to downtown could go to a physical center 10, 15, 20 miles out of town, set up shop on a regular or semi-regular basis, and telework, basically. Those are obviously long gone, but you know, my all of the studies back then and even the ones that included the people working from home showed that telework improved productivity. Now we are in a situation that's basically forced telework. And I'd I'd like your thoughts on uh, how both sides have have responded. Uh, Mark, I'll take the federal side first. I think on the one hand, you know, federal uh, employees have really embraced telework. Some of the studies I've seen in the trade press on Federal News Network have shown that the productivity levels continue to be good in a telework setting. And just as I said in the first segment, I think it's really important to note that I don't view this as something temporary. You're not going to get rafts of federal employees to return to their agencies five days a week, not necessarily only because they don't want to contract a virus but because they're not going to want to get in the slug line 25 miles from Washington at 5.30 in the morning to ride in uh, every day. So if you're a, a federal worker, you have to figure out what that means. If you're a federal supervisor, you have to figure out how you're going to supervise your people, but you also have to figure out how you're going to provision them to do the work. We all like to think that uh, we're in a paperless society, but you know, you and I both have home offices, and we print things. We may not print a lot of things, but we print things. So, how are you going to be able to support federal employees who occasionally do need to hit the print button on a personal device? Uh, how are you going to provide them with the tools other than a laptop uh, that they need to do uh, their job? But if you're a contractor, it poses some of those same questions. You know, the commute can be different depending. But nevertheless, contractors may be in a position, too, where it's difficult for them to come into an office if they've got a house full of school-age children who are distance learning themselves. And, you know, you want to make sure that that's actually happening rather than them rating the Netflix account. So I think, you know, as a, as a social matter, whether you're a government employee or employer or a contractor employer, you're going to have to figure out how to make sure that your people have the flexibility they need to work for you, but also to meet the other obligations uh, that they have. But it, it posts some interesting questions. You know, do you have to be in the Washington, D.C. metropolitan area? If you're not having in-person discussions, can you be in Sacramento? Can you be in Sarasota, Florida? 
And if you're in Sarasota, Florida, if you're a federal employee, does that mean that you're suddenly giving up your locality pay? So that's an issue. If you're a government contractor, you may think, great, I can go out now and on my hiring pool isn't just people in certain geographic locations. I could find a talented person wherever they are. To some extent that's true, but you know, you have to give them some reason to be tied to your organization and you have to make sure that the people who say they have the qualifications actually do have the qualifications. There's, it's not like there would be government contractors uh, sitting around in small and mid-sized Midwestern states just wait, waiting for you to find them. So you have to do some due diligence as a government contractor, but you also, if you're going to allow your people to be physically anywhere, you want to make sure that you give them that still that notion of being part of your company, part of their team, because otherwise you're going to have an awful lot of people who freelance and go back and forth from position to position. And that poses its own challenges. Yeah. But overall, I, I've been very pleasantly surprised on both sides of the equation, how quickly and how well most people seem to have adapted to the work from home situation. Well, I think you're right. I think that, uh, you know, most people uh, understand what they need to do. Some people uh, have the same work hours that they have always had. They, uh, you know, sit down and go to it and plow through their day. Other people, I think, are realizing that so long as they get the work done that they need to get done, uh, and this is more of the model where some professional service workers come in, it's not necessarily that you need to sit in front of your laptop from 8.30 to 5 uh, and have your camera on. Uh, you can, you know, start your work day at 7, and then if you need to take care of some other things, you do that, and then you come back to it to make sure that you get everything in that you need to get in. It's a lot of flexibility, and a lot of that flexibility you have because you are no longer spending an hour plus each way on your commute. I also want to emphasize, well, that's a positive. What I said before is also true. Some of it's a net negative, Mark, because you're not having the in-hall discussions. You're not having those so-called water cooler discussions that not just build a sense of team, because that's really important. They also really do spark ideas, things that you might not otherwise think of. And if you're an employer, you have to figure out ways to stimulate that and try to replicate it in a virtual environment. Okay. What's going to happen when COVID's not going to go away technically? Uh, At least that's what the medical people on the shows I'm watching are saying, and and that includes CDC and NIH. But when it relents or when it goes semi-dormant, how much of this do you think is going to stick? Uh, I think that we're going to see a good degree of it stick into the medium term, Mark, uh, for some of the reasons I talked about. Uh, One, you've proven that the productivity can be there by working remotely. Two, uh, if you live in a major metropolitan area, Washington, New York, San Francisco, uh, you just don't want to get into the nightmare commute that you got into 
that's particularly true if you're going to have school-aged children that maybe need some supervision at home. Those are at least three reasons, putting aside the virus uh, concerns, why I, I, it may be a number of years before you see a federal workforce return in large permanent numbers to an office. I think what's more likely is you're going to see people telework a few days a week, maybe come into an office a couple of days a week. That's most likely, I think, what we're going to be looking at uh, as, I hate the term, but it's true, the new normal. Look, we've already seen agencies take that model. Uh, the General Services Administration has substantially downsized its physical footprint in the Washington, D.C. area. You and I both remember when GSA had three, four, five buildings that it no longer has right? just in this area alone. And the building that remains uh, is one where, uh, unless you're the administrator, you're not going in every day. <laughs> Point. All right, let's take a break. You're listening to Amtower Off Center on the Federal News Network. I'm here with Larry Allen of Allen Federal, A-L-L-E-N Federal.com, and we shall return right after this. Welcome back to Amtower Off Center on the Federal News Network. I'm Mark Amtower. I'm here with Larry Allen of Allen Federal. Larry, in a recent newsletter, your newsletter, the week ahead, uh, you were discussing the seventh straight year of growth for small business contractors in the government market. And I believe your figure was 3.5% above the uh, 23% goal. So I'm assuming this is, these are, are real numbers. We're not talking about companies claiming small status uh, when they're not. Well, Mark, I think you're going to find a little bit of everything here in small business numbers. It's a big government and there are lots of small companies that have small business status. Generally, though, I think these numbers are real for a number of reasons. One, government's done a much better job, particularly over the last three or four years, of trying to come at what really is a small business so that you end up with fewer false positives. In this case, uh, false positives, somebody like Lockheed Martin that shows up as a small business. Uh, <laughs> they've really been trying to weed that out. And what that happens they didn't represent themselves that way. They bought somebody that was small. Right. And that's how that happens. But GSA and other government agencies have really been trying to clean up the SAM database and straighten out uh, NAICS codes by which businesses can classify themselves as small or other than small. So it's getting much cleaner now. I think it will become cleaner still. But the bottom line is, if you look at the strategic level, the macro level for these numbers, small businesses and government contracting are doing very well. You know, 26.5% of contracted dollars. That's a lot of money for a lot of small businesses. And uh, small businesses. Say, say that number again, please. Well, it was 26.5% of all the awarded dollars yeah. went to small business prime contractors. That's pretty cool. That's a lot of money for a lot of small businesses, and that doesn't even count the larger bucket of money that went to small business subcontractors. So that's all stuff, Mark, that's on the good side of the ledger. Small businesses are doing well. I think there are some reasons for that. One is 
It's easy in some cases to buy from small businesses, whether you're a 8A company, for example, that can be have some very expedited acquisition uh, options open to it. Similarly, service disabled veteran owned small businesses, very easy to buy from. Those are things that matter, particularly this time of year. Uh, those are good news stories. But I also think that government has a tendency to look at all small businesses and say, yay, the small business community is doing well. And just like any other community, not everybody's the same. And while there are some businesses that are doing well, there are some small businesses that have left the government market. Compliance issues, look, just this year, just two issues that are causing businesses of all size to expend money. Cybersecurity maturity model certification. You've got to get certified that you uh, have good, consistent cyber practices that conform with identified government standards. Uh, and the third party certification process, once it gets started, will not be cheap. And you have to, to do it, whether you're a prime or a sub. Similarly, if you if you're working with any types of technology in your business, you now have to do an inventory to make sure that your business technology does not include names like Huawei or ZTE or any of their constituent companies because you're not going to be able to do business with the government if you do use those technologies. And it's really important to understand that that matters not whether those technologies actually support your government business. It's, do you have those technologies anywhere in your business enterprise? And those are the types of things that are very expensive for small businesses, particularly if they do have those technologies, they have to make a business decision. Am I going to spend 20, 30, $100,000 to rip that technology out and replace it and if I do, is that a good business investment relative to the margin I have on my federal government business? So while we have really good news stories at the strategic level, Mark, I really think you have to look beneath the numbers and look at the costs that are imposed on small businesses when they're doing business in this market. And the fact that for some of them, those costs are prohibitive. Okay. Let's talk about some of the, uh, the vehicles, though. So, Stars 2 technically uh, hit its spending cap, so there was an extension. Stars 3, I mean, Stars is, is a very, very uh, solid contract for eight A's. It is. It's, a very, it's very popular, very popular not just with eight A's, but obviously with government buyers because right. the contract did hit its ceiling, and GSA had to extend the ceiling out on the one hand and then accelerate uh, the schedule for STARS 3 on the other so they can uh, keep it going. There are a lot of uh, 8A businesses that uh, would like to uh, add their name to the list of STARS 3 contractors. Uh, GSA is eager to expand this program uh, as well. It offers the advantages of 8A contracting uh, from companies particularly that have been vetted by GSA uh, and the advantages of being able to uh, order from an indefinite delivery, indefinite quantity vehicle that has its own expedited ordering features to it 
So STARS is a, is a very popular program. I think uh, GSA is going to see a lot of business go through that program here in the last five or six weeks of the fiscal year. And they are moving very quickly to put STARS 3 in place. I think they'd like to get an RFP out, oh, in the matter in a matter of a month or two so that they can begin getting companies res to responding and begin the process of transitioning over so they don't hit the ceiling again for STARS 2. Yeah, the, and, and the new vehicle, the cap's going to be significantly higher, as I understand it. Right, and I, that indicates the popularity and the, also that GSA doesn't want to have the stop in coverage that it had for STARS. That also happened around the time when GSA pulled the plug on Alliant 2 small business. Right, and I'm still unclear as to why they did that because it was a very popular vehicle. I know a number of companies that spent a lot of time and a lot of money getting ready to pursue the contract. And now it's not there. What's going to happen? Well, I think what's going to happen is that, you know, GSA is going to take some time with this. Unfortunately, I don't think there's going to be an instant solution I think one of the reasons why the agency moved as quickly as it did on STARS is that uh, it needed to make sure it had some small business vehicles in place, particularly at year end. It may or may not uh, cause some expansion of the number of small businesses that apply to be a schedule contract holder. You know, we'll have to see about that. But I think for Whatever it is that Alliant to Small Business was going to be, it's now going to be something else. And GSA is not moving slowly, but I do think they're moving methodically to understand what that could be and what it would look like. Whatever they come out with, Mark, is not going to look like Alliant to Small Business was supposed to look like, and it's not going to look like Oasis Small Business looks like today. Yeah. Was that good news for CIOSP3 small? <laughs> uh, I think so. I think if you're looking at companies that like to do business through IDIQ contracts and definite delivery and definite quantity contracts, GSA not having this alliant to small business model uh, to compete uh, with NIH, uh, you like that, particularly if you had the NIH contract and you didn't have the GSA precursor contract to it. You, know, you enjoy uh, freedom. But I, I think also that, you know, Alliant 2 small business, I think GSA, I don't know all of the details, but Mark, but I certainly feel like they believe that they were painted into a corner. There were so many legal issues with Alliant 2 small business that the agency either believed or knew it could not resolve. So, I think that's one of the reasons why it ultimately pulled the plug on them. Why on didn't they program. say so publicly? Well, that's a, a reasonable question, but the, certainly the you know, I, privately and from other people and people in the legal community and elsewhere, I think it's a pretty good idea that GSA had legal issues with the multiple protests that had been filed under um, Alliant to small business that they couldn't resolve. Everybody likes to protest, but 
and and you should protest. I, you and I have talked before. I am when you have reason. Yes. Yes, I'm an advocate for that. On the other hand, I think everybody needs to understand that if you push your issues far enough and long enough. What's your ultimate desire? Your ultimate desire is to try to have a contract. Your ultimate desire is not to have the program blow up in your face. So, yeah. um, you know, we, this was something that we uh, worked with way back in the day when I was at the coalition, having to explain to companies that were rightfully angry and upset that picking up the, the stakes and going to play in another backyard was really the only option. If they were wanted to play in this backyard, then while the fence could be moved here or there, there was still going to be a fence and you had to be able to play within it. Right. Yeah. All right. We're going to take a break. You're listening to Amtower Off Center on the Federal News Network. When we come back, when Larry and I come back, we're going to talk a little bit more about what companies need to do to prepare for Uh, not only the new normal, but the new FY. Uh, We shall return right after this. Welcome back to Amtower Off Center on the Federal News Network. I'm here today with Larry Allen, and we've been discussing uh, the new normal, the impact of everything that's going on around small biz, STARS 2 extension, no alliance small, and and what companies, uh, you know, what we're going to talk about now is what companies need to be doing to prepare for the new FY. So as usual, Larry, uh, um, not just for smalls, but for everybody, there's a lot of contracts coming out uh, a couple before the end of FY, but then a lot between now and the first of the year and the end of Q2. So what, what do companies need to do to prepare? Well, Mark, I think the the first thing that companies need to do is figure out which of these indefinite delivery, indefinite quantity contract vehicles they want to be a part of, either as a prime or as a participating contractor. Uh, I'm a firm believer that, uh, particularly if you're in the information technology or professional services arena, you have to have a couple of these contracts in your contracting uh, satchel. Uh, you don't have to be a prime. In fact, sometimes it's not good to be a prime, but you want to make sure that you have a good couple of indefinite delivery, indefinite quantity contracts that enable you to answer the how question. The how question is when their government customer says, I love your solution, how do I buy from you? You want to be able to say something other than, well, gee, if we do a simplified acquisition, we can buy up to a couple hundred thousand dollars. That's going to work for some, but they're really asking you is what contract vehicle do you have that's going to make my life easier? (laughs) Um, They don't come right out and say that, but that's what they're asking. So if you're a contractor, you have to figure out which one of these vehicles you need. If you're doing a lot of business with the Army, for example, you want to look at the next iteration of the ITES contract. Uh, There are a number of small businesses that are taking a look at CISP for when that comes out. It is attracting a lot of interest from the small business community, uh, even though notably it's going to be one CISP contract. There's not going to be a a special standalone for small businesses. Uh, If you're doing a lot of business with the Navy, 
The next iteration of Seaport is going to be something that you want to look at. Huge. Uh, right. Not every contractor is going to be able to be on every one of these vehicles, but you need to be in the vehicles, uh, on the vehicles where your potential customers are. I have a client of mine right now, for example, that wants to do a lot of business inside health and human services. They're not a CISP contractor. And one of the things that I've told them and that would-be customers are telling them too is, look, we really would like you to be on CISP in order for us to do business with you more easily. We really like the GSA contracts you're on, but we are being told that we have to buy from CISP, so we need you to be on that. If you're a contractor, that's the type of question and type of statement you need to anticipate so that you have yourself covered uh, when your customer asks. When should they start planning for uh, SP4? This is kind of rhetorical, but. Oh, you know, it's definitely now. I mean, they're way down the the line. Last year. (laughs) Yeah, right. NIH is way down the line in this. I think that they're going to, last I heard, they were going to get an RFP out uh, sometime towards the end of the calendar year with offers due soon after the new year. Don't blame me for ruining your holiday. I just am reporting on the timeline. I did not create it. Uh, And then they'd like to get some awards made uh, late spring next year uh, so they can get the program up and running. So if you haven't done anything, it's time to start talking to partners uh, and understand what the scoring is going to be in order for you to be eligible for that. Uh, The big thing about that specific contract, Mark, is NIH could not be any clearer. They do not expect this to be an entry-level contract for a new government market entity. So if you are a new government market entity and you want to participate in the NIH contract, my recommendation is to find a team to be a part of uh, because otherwise you're going to find a very steep hill. Yeah, and again, do that now. Don't wait until the contract's awarded because the likelihood of being appended post-award is uh, approaching zero. It it is, particularly with how things are being assessed now in terms of joint offers and teaming agreements. And then the contractors who get awarded, Mark, are going to be exhausted from the bidding process. What they're going to want to do is go out and sell uh, and having a conversation with them about being added at that point is going to be very difficult. All right. We, we haven't chatted in a while, so we haven't gone through our annual CR dance, Larry. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and for those of you who haven't heard our CR dance, every year for the last 15 years, Larry and I start talking in June or July about what, Larry? Talking about you know, how long the government is going to be operating under a continuing resolution in the new year. And how, how often have we been wrong? Uh, <laughs> oh, we've been wrong never. So, <laughs> um, so we're going to have one. But you have a few other thoughts here, uh, particularly if there is a change in administration. Right. So usually, Mark, it's pretty difficult to crystal ball gaze on how long a continuing resolution might last. We can take it as a given 
that most, if not all of the government will start the year under a continuing resolution. Right now, I'm predicting that the entire government will do so for 2021. Uh, the Senate has not moved anywhere near what they need to do on any of the appropriations bills uh, for them to maybe say, do something for DOD or for DHS. So I think everybody's gonna start the year on a continuing resolution. Depending on what happens in the November elections, though, I think it might be a little bit easier this time to say when you could end up with full-year appropriations for FY21. Uh, right now, we're looking at potentially a change of party in the White House. We're looking at a very good potential for changing party control of the Senate. Uh, if those two things are going to happen, and they do happen, Mark, you're going to see a lot of pressure from the remaining congressional Republicans to do appropriations for FY21 in November. Why? Because that's when they're going to be at their strongest. That's when they're still going to retain control of the Senate. They're still going to have some bargaining chips to get some things that they want. Uh, and uh, I think there's going to be a lot of pressure in that case to get something done before uh, they adjourn for Christmas. Uh, which means that, you know, we may end up knowing what the full year appropriations are going to be um, by the end of the calendar year, which would be a good thing. In fact, the Department of Defense leadership several years ago said they more or less plan on not getting appropriations from Congress uh, until the start of the calendar year. So that doesn't, you know, all things being equal, that doesn't necessarily hurt DOD spending. Uh, so if we see an election result that the polls indicate we're going to see, I think we can anticipate that we'll start under a CR on October 1st, but somewhere around December 22nd, we might end up getting a, a full year appropriations for the remainder of the fiscal year. I like your crystal ball, man. <laughs> <laughs> all right larry thanks again for coming in even, mark, even though it's virtual <laughs> mark thank you i really uh, appreciate the opportunity and uh appreciate the people of federal news network yeah larry allen allen federal a-l-l-e-n federal.com uh for those of you who've listened to the show before you've heard this this is not my day job i advise companies on all aspects of marketing to the government, particularly, and this is especially important in these times, leveraging, fully leveraging LinkedIn. So if your social media game, your social networking game isn't operating on all eight cylinders, give me a call. Drop me a line at markamtower at gmail.com. And thank you for listening to Amtower Off Center. You've been listening to Amtower Off-Center on Federal News Network. Tune in Mondays at noon or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One.